Let's all open our Bibles together. I love it that you all love to open your Bibles together. We hear the pages turning as sermon goes on as we follow along in God's Word. It's good for accountability as well as for stability. Turning your Bibles then to Hebrews as we're teaching our way through this great book that God has given us. It's certainly focused on Hebrew believers, but necessary for Gentile believers as ourselves as well to grasp Jesus Christ as he is presented in this book and particularly at this moment as our great high priest. Please follow along as I read chapter 4 beginning in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Lord, we bow before you in need of approach. We approach you, Lord God. We pray in a reverent spirit. We pray in a broken and contrite spirit. We pray, but also in a bold spirit because of who Jesus is. And for us who are here today, or who hear this message, who have been struggling struggling against a feeling of non-acceptance before God and a lack of boldness, may these your words teach us otherwise and give us that boldness that comes by rightly coming before your throne of grace. We pray your help in this. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Our high priest built upon the foundations of every high priest of Israel that came before, who were types of the Christ to come. We're doing a ministry that was reflective of and just a foreshadowing of the great and grand ministry that Jesus would do. In Hebrews, we've been learning about the high priest, and we are not done yet. I think by the time we are finished with the book of Hebrews, we are going to have uh, quite a tome of knowledge, quite a body of knowledge that we can call our confession of Jesus Christ, our high priest, of what we can know, believe, and confess as truth, and then walk in it by faith. So we've been learning that Jesus is a high priest who leads us into the rest of God. But I want to begin this morning in our introductory comments by turning you in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. For I think this passage reflects 
the reality of the hearts and minds of many believers, even believers who have walked with Jesus for a long time, and even intimately, as is here, and need to be corrected in it and brought near. John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says to his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Those verses are read many times without this verse. Thomas said to him, by the way, Thomas is one of the 12 disciples. Thomas has walked with Jesus for three years. He has been under the tutelage of the master teacher for three years. And it's about time for graduation. Graduation because Jesus is going to be caught up into heaven after his crucifixion. He's going. I go to prepare a place for you. Key, I go. Thomas and the other 11 are going to stay and enter ministry without Jesus' physical presence with them. So, on the eve of graduation, Thomas, the disciple, upon hearing this, and where I go you know, and the way you know, Thomas answers thus. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? I think there are many people sitting here, and I think there are many people who've either lived through this, gone through this, and may still be in this state, who are hearing it with Thomas, saying, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Not a very good credential right before graduation. Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the way. We do not know the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Jesus is going to the Father. And Thomas doesn't know 
where he's going or how to get there. I think there are many people who have confessed a faith in Jesus Christ who in reality when they think about how they are going to get into the presence of God the Father, they have some concerns. How can we know the way into the throne room of God? No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. Well, today, I'm going to show you one aspect of how every believer may approach boldly the throne of God through Jesus. We have looked at this high priest who leads us to rest via boldness, bold in our confession of him in verse 14, confessing him as the great, the MAGA high priest of all, who has passed through the heavens into the very holy place of God. He is there where God is in the heavenly holiest of holies. We are bold in that confession. We're bold in his sympathy toward us, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He was walking with Thomas as a human would walk. And Thomas says, we don't know. He's been teaching this man for three years and he doesn't know the way. I am certain that that was a trial for Jesus. But he teaches through unto this frightened man. How do we get there? And he says, I am the way. And if you want to approach, you approach through me. What does that mean? Well, part of what that means is here in our text in Hebrews in verse 16. We know that he's a sympathetic to our weakness and was all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. So we are then boldly in our expectations of mercy and grace. For that's how our verse ends, to find help, excuse me, obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So our new study today is that we're going to be bold in our expectations of mercy and grace. And grace and mercy are tied up in the very way in which this is presented to us, our bold expectations. Why are we bold in our expectations to be able to approach the throne of God? We are bold in these expectations from his yearning invitation, from God's yearning invitation. When we started this chapter, I reminded you that there was a lot of lettuce in this chapter. Not salad, but the two words put together, let us. We started in verse 1 of chapter 4, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have fallen short of entering his rest. We then looked again to verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall short by this same example of disobedience. Let us work, let us strive, let us passionately go after the entrance into the kingdom of God. In verse 14, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And now, verse 16, the fourth time, let us therefore. 
from all of these things to rightly fear, to rightly desire and push into the kingdom, and to rightly hold fast our confession of a great high priest who is brought into the holy place the right sacrificial offering. We are bold in our expectations from his invitation. Let us come. Let us therefore come. That's an invitation. Knowing all these things, doing all these other things, let us come. God is an inviter of men. His invitations is a desired relocation. His invitations present a desired relocation. Let us come. From where we are to where he is. When we look at finding our way on this planet that we call the globe, we find that the cartographers, those who make maps, have given our globe some lines with which we can orient ourselves as to where we are on the globe. Longitude lines and latitude lines. And given the right longitude and latitude, you can negotiate your way, you can orient yourself as to where you are and find where you need to be. This call, this invitation, is an invitation to relocate ourselves to where God is and where Jesus is. Come. Come. So if I carry this metaphor, this picture a little further, the longitude of this section of Scripture is equated with intimacy. The longitude can be equated with intimacy and the latitude with proximity. Intimacy with God and proximity to God, closeness to God. And one of the things I've said many times, and I will repeat probably many times to myself and to you, is this truth about God's commandments. We have a number of ways we can look at God's commands. We can have the negative way, that God is a commanding God and he's given us negative laws. And we have to bear them and they're oppressive. We can look at God's commands in another way, that God is indeed by his commands protecting us from ourselves. So that these curbs on the side of the road will keep us in God's road and not allow us to jump off into the ditch, into the weeds of sin and strife. God's commands orient us that way. But we can see God's commands as we need to see them, the way God sees them. God's commands can be equated with this statement. Come here. Come here. God is a God of invitation, and he's never stopped being that to all men. 
God retrieves men. God calls after men, even after sin. Because God desires communion with men. God desires fellowship, communion with the men he has created. Even Adam and Eve in the beginning, when they're walking in the garden and had fallen into sin, Adam and Eve had then hidden themselves from God, and it is God who calls out in the garden, where art thou? Where art thou? God is looking to come to them, and man is running from him. God is after them and calling Adam and Eve to himself. And to make it easier to approach, he even covered their sin and their nakedness. In 321 of Genesis, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. God says, come here. To Abraham, God said to him and all his people who would be there, but to all the peoples of the world, he said something to Abraham that resonates with the idea of let us come. To Abraham, he said in covenant promise, in Genesis 22, he said, in your seed, listen, all the nations of the earth shall be what? Blessed. That's God saying, come here through this seed. No one comes to the Father but through me. The nation is blessed through the seed. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And even Jesus, in John 4, speaking to the separated Samaritans, the woman at the well and all who were there, he reminds her and all who are listening, salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. The Jews of whom Jesus is one. No one comes to the Father but through me, a Jew. To Moses, God said, come before me through this law. The entirety of the law, we can look at it as, as oppressive commands designed to keep people in a bondage or an underprivileged position, or we can see it as God's invitation, which is what the law was. Never before had God put his glorious presence on the face of the earth and invited a people and any other people who would join themselves to that people to meet with him. But in the law of Moses, they made a tabernacle that was called the tabernacle of meeting. Not just we're going to get together and hang out together, fellow Hebrews, yeah, this is a cool place, man. No, this was where you met with God, very God. It was a reverential center of God saying, come here, but when you come. But when you come, you come holy. Meet me at the tabernacle of meeting. And even in the life of all of the law of Israel, the seven feasts of Israel, Every calendar year, the seven feasts required by God typify the sequence 
of the Lord's redemptive career of his work. It begins at Passover, where the sacrifice is made for sin so that the angel of death passed over Israel. And in commemoration of Jesus, that lamb who would keep the angel of death and punishment passing over Israel. To the Feast of Tabernacles that symbolized the kingdom of Christ to come of the Mashiach. The Messiah would set up a kingdom and they celebrated it every year, meaning, come near, I'm coming. Three times every year, every male of the Jews, of the Hebrews, were to come before God for holy purposes. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, or Harvest, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I want you to remember something. Our theme of chapter 4, Hebrews, is enter my rest. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Be diligent to enter that rest. I want you to come to me. But you come my way. You come my way. God has invited us into his presence. The rest of God is available to us. The rest that he spoke to Israel about, as we've already learned, was not fulfilled, for there is yet a rest to be entered into. Lord, we don't know the, where you're going. And we don't know the way. I am the way. His invitation is a yearning invitation of God. Yet, small letter B in your notes, his invitation has a desired attitude. A desired attitude. Let us therefore come boldly. That's the attitude. The question I have had for many years and many of you perhaps have, is how do I do that? Like Thomas. Okay, the way we know. What's the way? And then this writer tells us, come boldly. I'm still back at fear. Let us fear, let any of you seen it fall short of it. Let's be diligent to enter that rest. Let's hold fast our confession. I'm doing it. I'm here. I've got it. I've got it. Okay. How do I get to boldness? How do I get to boldness? Why should I get to boldness? Because he said so. I think he just did. Let us therefore come boldly. Boldly. And we come boldly by coming the way in which God would have us come. I want to take you back into the Old Testament and show you how they were commanded to come before God and remind us that there is something we need to bring with us to be bold. Exodus 23, if you'll turn there in your Bibles, 
Verse 15. The law says, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. Now listen, pay attention here. None shall appear before me empty. Come to me. But don't come empty. What does that mean? Let me explain it a little farther by a term that gives us the fullness of this. Exodus 34, 20. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. Here's the principle. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. The word redeem means to buy it back from God. God says everything that opens the womb, it's mine. If you want to keep it, okay, you have that little donkey, you want to put that donkey to work, you want to keep it on the farm, then you've got to buy it back from me, God is saying, to redeem it. It's mine, you don't own it you got to buy it before me. So then the next phrase, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. If you want to keep that animal or that firstborn even of your son, you got to pay for him. So when you approach me, you better have the price of that son, that donkey, whatever it is, in your hand. Thought we were supposed to be entering boldly, Pastor. This is getting scary again. Good. But I am going somewhere. I'm going to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, verse 10. God commanding, Moses, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I gave to you and reap its harvest... Then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. You shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And now he shall, he shall. Wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So if you're walking in Israel and it's okay, time to get the first fruits of the harvest, and you bring it in, you don't just walk higgledy-piggledy into the temple wave it around yourself, and walk back out. You need the priest. The priest shall wave it on your behalf. He shall stand there in your place. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. 
Let me emphasize this one more time with one more verse, a set of verses. Deuteronomy 16, before they enter the land, they receive Deuteronomy. Three times a year, your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. Not in the place where you choose, you Samaritans, but in the place where God chose, Jerusalem, his temple. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, now pay attention here, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So what God has given you on these days you bring, you do not approach the Lord with nothing. And when you approach the Lord, you're going to need help. As soon as you enter the precincts of the temple grounds with whatever it is you're bringing, according to the law, for hundreds of years, Israel realized when they got there, they turned their care over to the priests to minister before God on their behalf. The question is, how do I come boldly? The question is, why do I come boldly? Why can I feel bold? Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We boldly approach with our great high priest, not alone. It is the highest form of presumption to assume that one may approach the high throne of God, very God, all alone with empty hands. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches come, but the Bible teaches come appropriately, rightly, reverently, with something in your hands and with someone with you. Too often in the evangelical church, we've gotten away in perhaps an overreaction to the uh, priestly works that have come in from the Roman Catholic Church, an adulteration of what should be in the church of God, yet alone we've separated ourselves so far from the necessity of a priest that even the work of Jesus the high priest has been neglected. So if you ask any evangelical Christian across the United States, what do you confess about your great high priest Jesus? What do you know about what he is and what he does? Tell me. I wonder what answers you would get. And some of you are already saying, well, I hope you don't ask me that after church. What are, if we hold fast the confession of our great high priest, it is holding fast that we need him and that he's gone before into the holy place with an appropriate sacrifice. We come boldly with him. We do not come boldly without him. We come boldly because he has presented to God on our behalf the appropriate sacrifices to please God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, 
we learn this about approaching God and how we get to him. And it is like as unto what Jesus said in John chapter 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. In Ephesians 2.18, we read, for through him, let me read that again, for through him, Jesus, we have access by one spirit to the Father. How do we get to the Father? We have access through him, not through me. See, any system of works righteousness wherein you are trying to pay your debt yourself, where you are bringing something in and of yourself to present to God and saying, I have done enough good things for God for him to accept me, you are going to find the other side of God that will not make you bold, it will make you barbecue. will be burned up with fire. You approach God not empty-handed. You approach him with the appropriate sacrifice. We come through him. Ephesians, again, the apostle Paul tells them in chapter 3, verse 12. Speaking of Jesus, he says, in whom, in Jesus, we have boldness. There it is, boldness and access with confidence through faith where? Where is that faith placed? In him. Not in you. In he who comes with you. In he who has gone before you. On he who represents to God for you on your behalf. In Hebrews later on, we will study this text in greater detail when we get to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 19, I read. Therefore, brethren, Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You have to realize that the Jew would be shocked by this statement. To come into the holiness place of God in the temple for an ordinary man was absolute and sure death pre-Christ under the law of Moses. The presence of God, the very glory of God was in that holy place and only the high priest and only once a year was he allowed to enter to make atonement for the people. And if he did not approach rightly, he would die there in the holy presence and the glory of God. That's the let us fear. Lest we fall short. And what's falling short? Unbelief. Falling short is belief in yourself, believing in some false system, believing that you can come with whatever you want in your hands, apart from the high priest and his sacrifice, the blood of Christ. Having boldness, it says in Hebrews 10, 13, to enter the holiest by the blood of Christ. The means of the entry is by his sacrificial blood in which I must trust the way you know. The way you know. What can wash 
away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, there's theology in these old songs. There's entrance with boldness in these songs. Come boldly, enter boldly into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Oh, come here. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Full assurance of the faith is a synonym for let us therefore come boldly. A lyric from a hymn I love, Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ alone. The way you know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The second half of that verse that I was quoting says this, or excuse me, the first half, no condemnation, now I dread. That's boldness. Jesus and all in him are mine. Not in me, in him are mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. So we're bold from his invitation. And it's a yearning invitation. God desires people to come unto him, and he has made a way, his one way, the one way Jesus, the high priest, who presents the appropriate sacrifice for our boldness and does the appropriate ministry for us. Why are you here, Fred Meekot? Because of him. He'll talk for me. Jesus. I got nothing, but he brought everything. Bold in our expectations of his pointed destination. We could call it pinpointed destination. We come boldly because of his invitation. We are bold in our expectations of what we will find there from his pin pointed destination, and the destination is, small letter A, a throne. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne. The symbolism cannot be missed, and it's not just symbolic, it is actual. There is a throne of God. Who are we approaching on that throne? God the Father? God the Son. Some have stumbled here, and so I want to clarify who we should choose that we're approaching. In our text, this is solved. The text of Hebrews. We have read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, of Jesus Christ who sat down at the right hand of majesty at high, on high. That would be God the Father 
and he sits down on his right hand. In chapter 1, verse 13, where God says to Jesus, the Son, sit at my right hand. In 4 and 14, Jesus called the high priest, and what do priests do? Priests lead people to God, the Father. In Hebrews 8 and verse 1, I believe it's God the Father that we are approaching because in 8.1, we have Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. And again in chapter 12, verse 2, it says again of Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's at the right hand. Now where the confusion has come is here. In the same book of Hebrews, in chapter 1, verse 8, God himself proclaims of Jesus... Your throne, O God, is forever. Now, sometimes we can get thrown off track a little bit and ask the question, well, who's on the throne? Because again, in chapter 2, verse 9, it says of Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, the idea of kingship and throne. Well, let me clear it up. I believe it's most clearly understood this way. How do we understand God anyway? I mean, what is God? What is our God? Our God is the one true God. But though he be one, he is three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three in one, the Trinity. So we're always going to have problems with who's on the throne when the one is three and the three is one. But we need to realize that there is an indeed a sharing of the throne, the kingship, between God the Father and God the Son, for it was God the Father that said to the Son, your throne is forever. It's only in humanity that we don't like sharing. Even in the oneness of marriage, you have his and hers. And less ours. What are you doing with that? You mean you brushed your teeth with my toothbrush? What are you thinking? You know, that's never happened to any of you. But that's the sacred ground right there. That's human sinful stuff. With God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, it's all ours. And the throne is shared. So we come before the throne even though the Son is leading us to the throne and shares the throne. And I know somebody just got confused, so I'll keep moving. The shared throne of God, the throne is a symbol of royal government. Man had to make democracy and types of democracy and republics because when man has a throne, he becomes a tyrant. But when God has the throne, his royal authority, his royal government brings peace. The prince of peace. His throne is a symbol then of royal government. And it refers even to the king's role as a judge. A judgment seat, if you will, as well. And since God alone is the true king, it is natural that the word throne should apply to his royal authority. Listen to the psalmist. In Psalm 11, verse 4, The Lord is in his holy temple. 
the Lord's throne, hear me, is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids, listen, test the sons of, men, sons of men. His authority, his position, his power, even his judgment is there. We can approach the throne of judgment. In Psalm 45, 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So when he judges, he judges not like the courts of today. Well, what is that judge? Is that judge a liberal or is that judge a conservative? Is that judge going to look at the law as a living document? Or is that judge going to look at the, at the original text and say, well, this is the way it's written, this is the way we do it. And then even in that, is this judge really on this? Or will precedent hold sway? This isn't the courts of men. Righteousness and justice on his throne. His authority to judge especially is pointed out to us in Psalm 9 verse 4. For you have maintained my right and my cause, says the psalmist. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. And then to skip down just a couple verses to verse 7 in Psalm 9. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. The image of God's throne is carried through the New Testament. Even as we end the New Testament in the book of Revelation here we find God's royal authority is then given to Jesus and shared with the Father. The throne of, of authority and royalty is God's and Jesus Christ, the Son. The throne of judgment has been given to Jesus, even as he said in Matthew, all authority has been given to me. In Revelation 3, in speaking to the worstest of all the churches, and I say that in the true English grammatical fashion, worstest, when you get to this editing the tape, Edna, you'll know what I said. Worst est. The church that was neither hot nor cold, the Laodicean church, the church that had so much that they were doing and they just floated along. The church that has the worst condemnation yet has this invitation in Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes... To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, says Jesus, the Messiah. I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. How do I approach boldly this throne of judgment? How do I come before God? Because the judgment price has been paid. That he who stands and makes intercession for me, the advocate, the high priest, he who is in my place, he has satisfied God and justice is done and righteousness is made and I shall overcome not by virtue of my own works, but the virtues of him in which I hold and confess. It's a throne. But not just a throne of judgment. Here it is presented to us in this way. It is the throne of grace. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of what? Grace. It's a pinpoint destination. Somebody of you just said in your mind, destination? Longitude and latitude? Well, let me show you how my mind works. 
I asked the question to myself, is grace a destination? I said yes, for a state of grace is the most divine of destinations. To be in the state of God's covering grace is to be in the position of one receiving grace from God. Specifically, it is the disposition of his throne, and that disposition of the throne of God is grace. What is a disposition? Well, Webster's would tell us it's the prevailing tendency, mood, or inclination. How are you inclined today? Well, I'm inclined to steak followed by vanilla ice cream covered with chocolate sauce. Kind of sounds like grace. And grace is the unmerited favor of God. It means you can get that even though you don't deserve it. The throne of grace. An inclination of someone not only to allow you to do that, but to give it to you. It is the tendency of someone to act in a certain manner under certain circumstances. God and this throne that we are introduced to here, that we are approaching, we are to understand that it has a location that is a destination that exhibits the disposition of God to pour out his grace. The throne of judgment or the throne of grace. If you do not believe, you get the throne of judgment. Let us therefore fear lest any seem to have fallen short of it in unbelief. But with the high priest who's paid the price, we get a dispensation of grace. God is predisposed because of his son to lead us to grace because the sacrifice has been completely given by Jesus Christ himself. Even the way in which this book began told us of this Jesus in chapter 1 verse 3 who being in the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had this is a Jesus by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of majesty on high with Jesus having purged my sins your sins we can boldly approach the throne of grace God's throne is in a constant state of being disposed to dispensing grace he exercises his divine, royal authority and power, giving out grace. It is his predisposition. Are you not willing to come? I think Jesus said it best when he was teaching in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7. Ask. Ask. And it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks 
receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more your Father who is in heaven? Give good things to those who ask him. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also for them, for and this is the law of the prophets. How can you come boldly? You come boldly with the high priest by your side. You come boldly for he's already entered into the most holy place and offered up his very blood on your behalf, the perfect sacrifice. His hands were full of his own sacrificial offering, accepted by God, making us sons, bringing us into the relationships of sons. Whereas he said in chapter 2 of Hebrews and verse 12, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of of the congregation, I will sing praise to you, says the Messiah. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. The son who asks will get from God the grace apportioned to his very son, Jesus Christ, our mega high priest. Bold I approach the eternal throne. But not without Christ. With Christ alone. In Him alone, I can approach. We need to pray now. And I'll finish the rest of my sermon next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. How we can be in terror, how we can be in fear, O oh Lord, is so apparent because we so often transgress and fall into sin, even those who have believed, Lord. But we make as our confession that Jesus Christ is our high priest who has paid the price who has come with something in his hands, the eternal sacrifice of himself to take our place so that we might approach as a son to receive grace. Lord, I pray for those here who have not put their full faith in Jesus Christ as high priest, who have not looked to the sacrifice of Jesus, of himself on the cross, for their sin and believed in his finished work so that they can come boldly, that they would believe now that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, and our great High Priest. 
I pray they would come to this faith today. And I pray you would strengthen the faith of the rest of us in boldness. I pray in Jesus Christ. Amen.